It's August 21st, 2023. This is the best of Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 281 of Rook. I'm Gian Gomeshi. Hello to you from Toronto, from Canada. Salam Dustan Aziz, Durud Bashama. Hope you are doing well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. We are on our ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity. Today's episode is part of a Best of Rook series we are bringing to you for the entire month of August, where we're looking back at some of our favorite interviews over the last three and a half years since we launched, and some of our most entertaining moments, we think, and giving them to you. We've curated our faves, and we hope you check these conversations out, especially if you may have missed them the first time around. So today, two interviews with two prominent broadcasters of Iranian background who have both pretty much become household names in the Iranian diaspora as media stars and omnipresent TV hosts, albeit in very different fields of focus. First up, when he was a kid in the north of Iran, he fell in love with television and was able to access the American cable network MSNBC on a satellite dish. From that moment on, Fardod Farazod, a self-described nerd, knew that his future was somehow in media. Today, he's still in his 30s, and after a few years at BBC Persian, he's become one of the lead presenters at Iran International Television. We bring you a career interview, a career so far interview, with Fadad Farazad here on The Best of Rook. And then, he's an Iranian-British broadcaster who is undoubtedly one of the most recognizable faces on Persian TV, as well as his work in radio, Behzad Bulur has been a presenter and producer with BBC Persian for over 31 years. He's an award-winning artist, fashion designer, documentarian, who has a unique style that you just cannot miss. Behzad has made it his mission as a media personality to promote Persian culture and all varieties of music. And we bring you Behzad Bulur today with his first ever long-form interview in English. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It is there that you can link to all of our platforms. We are on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, SoundCloud, as well as in social media on Instagram. And if you'd like to see some visuals with Rook, switch over to our YouTube channel right now. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in both English and Persian, check us out on Telegram. Remember to support what we do at Rook Media. You can go to that website, rookmedia.com, and press the Support Us button to become a Rook member. You'll be taken to our Patreon page, where for a few bucks a month, you can really support what we do. If you have the means and the interest, we very much appreciate it. All right, let's get started. Well, my first guest today on The Best of Rook is a prominent Iranian-British journalist, anchor, and entrepreneur. Fardor Farahzad was born in Bandar Anzali, Iran, in the 1980s and fell in love with television as a kid, 
By the time he was 17 years old in 2003, he moved to the UAE to study at the Ajman University of Science and Technology and Dubai University. Fardod started his journalistic career working for an educational and scientific network called WIND in Dubai. He also set up his own little TV network. He then started reporting from Dubai for the BBC Persian website and eventually moved to London to start working for the newly launched BBC Persian TV. Fardad anchored and covered many major Iranian and international stories for the network, including Iran's nuclear program, the Arab Spring, the 2012 U.S. presidential election, the Brussels bombings, and the Nice truck attack. After 10 years at the network, around 2016, Fardad resigned from BBC Persian and is now one of the most prominent and ubiquitous anchors to be found on Iran international television. His coverage and interviews during the recent uprising in Iran have been must-see television for many Iranians around the world. Fardad Farahzad joined me from London for a feature career interview. Here's our conversation. Hello, sir. Hello, Jian. Thanks for inviting me. It's a good... And I like how you pronounce my name so Persian, you know? <laughs> oh, I was You a... have this very North American accent and then suddenly Bandera and Zadi Farahzad Farahzad. Love that. You're the first person to call my accent good. Khayli mochakira. Dige man 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 ke amishe bigam lache khayli khubi daram. Vali people laugh at that. I don't know. Um it's it's a it's a pleasure to have you on the program. You know, you've said your real mission in in terms of what you want to do as a broadcaster is to open a window to Iranians to a world they don't have access to. Tell me about that imperative in wanting to be the broadcaster you are. I think uh we, we have this unique position that uh, we are broadcasting to a country that is really isolated, but it's not exactly like North Korea. So people have access to satellite TV. They have internet, even though there are censorship, but they know how to go around it. But they don't have really access to impartial, professional uh, news and journalism. And we have this great opportunity, the very few networks that are out there, to broadcast to Iran. And I think we should really use this privilege to the best possible way we can. Uh, I know it's not easy because we are broadcasting to a country that doesn't even allow us to come and report from inside the country that their authorities, they hate us. If I go to Iran or any of my colleagues go to Iran, we're going to get arrested immediately. But then we have to be fair and impartial to them as well. So it's a very awkward situation, but it's also very rewarding because you have this unique position to open a window to millions of Iranians inside Iran to see the rest of the world and also see their leaders from another perspective that it's not available inside the country. I want to come back to the paradox of broadcasting to and for a country that you don't, you don't really have access to. Let me get to that a little later. But on this point about fair and balanced, I mean, you've said it is your ongoing mission to bring uh, to not bring an agenda to your broadcasting, to to be as fair as possible. That is, of course, a laudable goal for most journalists, and it's shared around the world. Is it somehow harder to achieve in Iranian media? I think it's difficult everywhere, even in democracies like Canada or the United States or here in, in the UK. But it's even more difficult in Iran, where we are broadcasting to a country that they don't allow us to go and visit, uh, let alone to report. They don't talk to us, yet there are a state, a recognized 
internationally recognized government and you try to give them the you know a fair and balanced uh, time as well uh, so it's really difficult to be impartial not to act as an opposition but also uh, reflect their opinion as well it's extremely difficult comparing I, to anywhere else in the world i guess even the nomenclature even the lexicon is difficult right like do you call do you call the government of Iran the government or the authorities or the regime or the, <laughs> you know, I, I, do you have, um, I, I'm sure at BBC Persian they did. Do you also at Iran International, do you have standards for what you're supposed to call the government of Iran? Well, I mean, Iran International has a bit more flexibility, if you like, but I mean, nevertheless, whether we like it or not, it's an, it's an internationally recognized government. It's a member of the United Nations. Uh, they act like a rogue state, if you like, but nevertheless, it's they are the ones who have power in Iran. So, I mean, I tend not to use the word regime. I mean, I might use it from time to time, but, you know, at the end of the day, you want them to watch you and listen to you as well as much as possible. And obviously, Why even though it's just... Why do you want them to listen to you? Because I think it's important even for, for your worst, worst enemies to see the other perspective as well, that there are people who are really suffering, that mm. what they're doing is just not right. You know, this is weird. It's, it, Iran is a very unique country. Right. There are many dictators in the world. There are countries that are suppressing their people, but Iran is really strange to the extent that they suppress their own people and they try to intervene in other countries' affairs. It's just very unique. And, and we'll get to what it's like dealing with the audience uh, in, in a few minutes. But I, but I imagine you sort of get it from all sides, right? You, you hear from people saying, why are you legitimizing this government by not calling them a regime and not using every moment to, to demonstrate against them? And then from others saying, why do you only cover the bad stuff? Why don't you uh, act more respectful towards uh, the foreign minister or whatever, right? That's right. I mean, it's a difficult balance to make. And... Uh Listen, we don't get it right all the time. We have our flaws. I make mistakes. And that's, I think, part of the business. It's normal because because of this weird situation we are in, it's extremely difficult to act like a, just a traditional broadcaster broadcasting news to, to a country that is acting normally like the UK. I mean, for instance, we, you talked about BBC. BBC Persian is very different than BBC News, you know, and we try to bring the same standards that BBC News has with regards to the UK government, to the Iranian government, but it just doesn't work. It's mm -hmm. too, it's apples and oranges, you know. And of course, when you're dealing with human rights, um, I mean, even in your social media, how can you not be aghast at something like Flight 752, right? It's not, it's, it's, it's not something that objectively you can be impartial about. It's a horrific story, right? Absolutely. It's horrific. But, but the art of the Iranian government is they, they have people like uh, Iranian Foreign Minister Javad Zarif that pretends that Iran is a normal government. And when you listen to him, he speaks good English. You know, he can articulate himself very well. Yes. And there are moments that you think, Wait a second, maybe I'm making a mistake. Maybe it's a normal government. Is it? Is it not? Uh, but then you see that the level of hypocrisy and uh, the way that he talks and he presents Iran is totally different from what's inside the country. And quite often, Western journalists, when they talk to people like Javad Zarif, they, they, they can't really dig into what's happening inside the country because, I mean, it's understandable. They have a researcher. They do some basic research and give it to the presenter or reporter and 
they have no access to the country and it just leaves the situation on the surface you can't dig into what's really happening Absolutely. in Iran. and he's very well spoken for the for the person who's not um, who doesn't have the depth of, of knowing exactly what's what might be happening in Iran uh, he just seems like a very well spoken spokesperson you know for instance he had an interview with Tulut News an Afghan TV channel and for the first time the, the person who was doing the interview was Afghan so he was talking in Persian and it made it even more difficult for Zarif to uh, you know, to escape the answers. And, you know, the, the reporter asked him, uh, well, the Iranian supreme leader is not directly elected by the people. And Zarif's answer was, well, so is in the United States where you have the Electoral College. You know, this is so Iranian <laughs> way of answering. You know, you're comparing the Iranian supreme leader with the United States democracy. And for a second, you think, for God's sake, you know, just be honest. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, <laughs> Take take me back for a second. Let's go. We'll come back to this, uh, uh, the state of the world and the state of broadcasting. But take me back to when you were a little kid growing up in Bandar Anzali. Um, t- tell me first of all. Tell me about your experience growing up in a small city in the north of Iran. What were you like as a kid? I mean, I was lucky because I had a computer quite early when I was a teenager, and uh, not uh, much later I had access to internet. And my father was uh, a big fan of satellite TV, so we had this huge satellite in our. Uh, in our building and uh, we had access to initially foreign TV channels and then later on Iranian TV channels in Los Angeles. I knew that that town is too small for me. I wouldn't, I couldn't see myself living there for, for the rest of my life. So as soon as I could, I just escaped and went to Dubai. Were you inquisitive as a kid? Were you, a, was was the six-year-old, the 10-year-old Fardad uh, walking around uh, asking questions like a reporter? I think so. I think so. I mean, at school, I remember I used to grill my uh, religious teacher a lot about God existence and questions like that. That you were <laughs> wow, not you were going to deep. ask, yeah, ask okay. in Iran. Yeah, <laughs> I, I didn't get myself killed in Iran, <laughs> thankfully, for those seventeen years. But you had the, um, uh, the the wherewithal to ask those kind of questions as a kid, huh? I know, but but the, the funny thing, because in Iran, you learn to act differently inside and outside, you know, whether it's your mom wearing hijab outside and not inside or talking about politics inside and not the same way you would talk outside. I think I learned from very early age how to ask the question, not to necessarily offend the other person, but also, you know, touch their nerve, if you like. And there's a story that, I mean, you're in this small town in northern Iran. Um, you end up watching or you, you had somehow had access to the American cable political channel MSNBC. Is, is that yeah, true? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, we, uh, uh, I don't know why, because MSNBC is a cable network. You're not supposed to receive it f- free to air on satellite. No. But somehow. Even people in North America can't get MSNBC unless that, they. That, that, right. That's right. But for some reason, I think it was probably a feat for U.S. soldiers in Middle East or a transmission for another contribution. I don't know why. Was, what was the reason, but somehow I randomly got this frequency and it had MSNBC on it. And I was fascinated by their graphics, the way they were presenting the news, and I was comparing it to you know, local news channels and Iranian TVs in Los Angeles. It was like an ocean away. Right. So... so MSNBC was the network that made me really interested in news broadcast. Fadad, if I asked your your family and friends when you were growing up, I, I mean, would it, would it have been clear to them 
Or would they say now that it was clear to them that you were going to grow up to be a, a famous news anchor and TV presenter? I think they would know that I would do something with television. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily be presenting or reporting because I like every aspect of this industry. Broadcasting is just my day and night. Um, I even used to make uh, animations, you know, cartoons when I was a kid with drawing like a dozen, uh, thousands of pictures and recording them frame by frame to animate something. You know, I, I really believe, I, I, if I haven't said this before on the show, I'm sure I'll say it again, which is that because it's one of my mantras in life, that, that one of the big tricks of being successful in life is knowing what you want to do. And the, and the younger you are when you know what it is that you love or you want to do, the, the, the easier life can be for you or the more you can ascend to, 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 to doing things the way you want to do them. Did you... I mean, it seems like you didn't, you weren't confused like most Iranian kids would be like, I've got to become a mechanical engineer and then a doctor and then maybe I could do media. I mean, it seems like you just knew. Is that true? Kind of, but it was my hobby. To to be fair, the the, the thing that I was more interested to than even broadcasting was uh, programming and coding. So I was a bit nerdy in my earlier years, if you like, earlier years. Uh, but somehow this actually helped me uh, later on in life because I knew a little bit about the technicality of things as well. So I could create things or build things that, you know, would cost me more. For, for instance, when I first started in Dubai in this wind, small TV channel, wind, wind TV, we hadn't had a teleprompter and I just made one because <laughs> I kind of knew how to make it. <laughs> That's awesome. So your, your family, uh, uh, just to complete the story of you in Iran, your family moves to Rasht when you're, you're 13. And by the time you're 17, you leave Iran to go to Dubai, as you've said. You know, you've maintained that you always wanted to leave Iran. What was the main precipitant for, for you wanting to leave the country of your birth? I just want freedom, I, and I still want more freedom. You know, anywhere I go, I, I, freedom is so fundamental for me. It's even more important than democracy for me. I want people to be as free as possible, not only me, but anyone else, whether it's what you're going to put in your body or what religion you want to practice or so, so you're one of those people like we had a, a guest on a few weeks ago named Maso Rahbari, who's a, um, a fitness instructor and an a Instagram influencer who's also in London now. You know, for her, being in Iran felt like she was in a cage. That That's the way it felt for you as well? Exactly. Exactly. That's how it was. And uh, I mean, when when you are in the cage, you don't know a lot about the outside world, but you know you are in a cage, you know? And once you're liberated, then you realize, okay, these are the freedoms I hadn't had when I was in that case. Is it ironic that you you didn't really love Iran growing up there, but that you end up dedicating your life, so far at least, outside of Iran, to broadcasting to people inside Iran? (laughs) I mean, it's not that I didn't love Iran or or I don't love Iran. I I mean, I like Iran like many other countries. I'm not patriotic, to be uh, fair. Uh, not to Iran, not to any other country. I mean, my parents happened to have sex in Iran and I became Iranian. They could be in Singapore. I would be a Singaporean now. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, obviously I have history there. You know, I grow up there. So I have some attachment to that country. And that's the language I speak. So if I if I, if I could speak Japanese, maybe I would broadcast in to Japan. But uh, I think it makes it even more interesting because Iran is such an isolated country. And I have this opportunity to bring the word to 
many Iranians. I think it makes it more more interesting than broadcasting to to the UK, for instance, where people have access to free media anyways. I think you're being, I, I don't totally believe you. I, I don't believe that it would be the same for you if you spoke Taiwanese to broadcast to Taiwan. I, I think that there's some level of investment in there for you. Um, maybe especially because you felt like you had to leave this country. Uh, or am I going too far? Uh, am I thinking that there's an emotional and psychological element to this that, that you don't feel? You might be right. You might be right. I mean, maybe one of the reasons is I want to show to the people inside the country that, you know, there can be an alternative, uh -huh. you know, the world can be a better place. And I mean, I tend not to compare governments with each other. I hate when people do that. Oh, look how great the UK government is comparing to your government. I'm, I mean, I'm a skeptical towards all governments around the world. Obviously, the Western ones, the ones that are democratic are better. But nevertheless, governments all around the world, they are the only entities that have the legal monopoly of using force. And that's a scary power to have. And I want people anywhere in the world, especially in places like Iran and Afghanistan, to know, you know, it's very dangerous to let someone else to make decisions for your life, especially when they have guns in their hands. Mm -hmm. So just speak for yourself. Try to make some changes and be more free. And there is other ways of living than the ones that your government is portraying for you. It does sound like freedom is paramount to you. You're, are you a libertarian, small L? Yeah, I am with a small L. Yeah, I have no political affiliation, but I, I'm a classical liberal. You yeah. know, I believe in, in freedom as much as possible. I The best decisions I can make are for myself and my family. I don't want to make a decision for you, and I definitely don't want you to make a decision for me. Hmm. You had a lot of gumption in your in your teens. You had a lot of confidence. I, I, I'm curious where it comes from. It's, you alluded to this a second ago. I cut you off, and I didn't mean to, but I, I really wanted to hear the story. You go to, to, to Dubai, and you end up calling a Los Angeles Iranian network, TV network from Dubai and basically telling them that you can contribute to, the, <laughs> to what they're I broadcasting. I mean, I know. it's My quite poru, you know? Like, like crazy. I was, <laughs> I was dying almost when I called. And it's funny. They connected me to the... A channel's owner, Ziatabai, who uh, is now a good friend of mine, he was an Iranian singer and the owner of that channel. I'm, I mean, within a few seconds after calling NITV, they connected me to their uh, CEO, if you like. So I was like really excited that I got this connection. And, you know, TV back then was a big deal. It wasn't like today that we have dozens of Iranian TV right. channels. It was right. one and only network, maybe one more. Uh, and when I had my first weather forecast that I made for them and they broadcast it on their network, I was over the moon. So how did, I mean, where did that confidence come from to be able to, to make that call, do you think? I don't know. Um, I think I've, I've always been a little bit of a maverick, I guess. <laughs> so you I did move to the UK. This is in 2008. You leave Dubai, you move to the UK. You end up working on air with the, the newly launched BBC Persian TV. Before that, it was basically a website. It was a it was an online service. It go it becomes a television channel. You're working on it. This must have been a huge move for you. How did you adjust to not just moving to London, but suddenly being known as one of the faces of a of a new TV network? I think it was the most important uh, you know transition of my life and my career when I moved to the UK and joined BBC Persian. I was in love with BBC brand from. A young age and uh, when I heard that they're launching a Persian TV channel I got super excited because a year before that they've launched BBC Arabic and I remember I used to watch BBC Arabic's launch a million times a day on YouTube 
And I was thinking how BBC Persian TV is going to look like. <laughs> it's really not that long ago. It's, you're talking about 12 years ago. And yet That's the right. media landscape has changed very significantly, not just around the world, but specifically when it comes to Iranian networks based in the diaspora in just the last decade or so. Can you tell us how it's grown from your perspective? I think uh, it, it, I mean, I had a show about this a few days ago that initially it started uh, with, with an accident really in Los Angeles when NITV, which was a local TV broadcasting to North America only, for some reason their, uh, their um, service provider in Florida made a mistake and they turned around their signal to another satellite that had coverage in Iran. And suddenly Iranians had access to this TV in Los Angeles. And everybody was, wow, there are people with no hijab and they're not pro-regime and they're talking Persian from other side of the world and we can watch it in Iran. That was the moment it started. But for, 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 for the first few years, it was all these small TV channels, small budget broadcasting to Iran till BBC Persian launched. And it changed the landscape of TV channels in Iran forever. And now there are so many new channels, mostly based in London, like Manoto, like Iran International that have a big chunk of the Iranian market in their hands. What do you think that, I mean, this would be an entire show or a series that we would need to do to really mine this, but if you could say it, you know, in brief, what do you think the impact of these networks, uh, Iran International that you're at, Manotou, BBC Persian, uh, what has been the impact of that on Iranians or Iranian culture, uh, both inside Iran and around the world? I think Iranians have a much better picture of how the rest of the world is today than, you know, many years ago. I don't know. I mean, you didn't live in Iran, but I remember there was a time that we had to hide VHS tapes, you know, uh, moving it from home to home to watch one of, you know, movies that were produced in the States, you know, for, for the 20th time. And we had no idea that one day we can watch this high quality uh, content live from other side of the world. It's very difficult for any government today comparing to 15, 20 years ago to not let its citizens to see what's happening around the world. And these TV channels, I think, whether we like them or not, they've changed Iranian perspectives about the rest of the world, about themselves, about their governments. Uh, and I think Iranians are partly because of networks like Manito are more Western, if you like, than what than what they were. But, but you're 15, broadcasting to ago. not just Iranians in Iran, but Iranians around the world. Do you, when you're doing the lead on Iran International, are you thinking about uh, pretty much Iranians in, in in Iran, or are you thinking about the Iranian that's in in Calgary or in Manchester or in Berlin or in uh, in Los Angeles? I think the, the the most. I mean, most of your focus is on Iran, obviously, but I think. Uh, Many Iranians who, especially those who live uh, very far from Iran in places like the west coast of the United States, they obviously don't have uh, uh, an up-to-date picture of what's happening in Iran. So I always have them in my mind as well um, to give them a picture of what's happening in Iran, what can they expect, what's happening for the loved ones inside the country. What, what was the reaction of your your fans, your followers, when you left BBC Persian, and I suppose when you started to work for Iran International? Well, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of my fans were, were shocked, uh, but uh, I think it was the time. I did that for 10 years. 
and I always wanted to launch this uh, Your Time TV. From 2009, when the Iranian presidential election didn't go well and there were protests in Iran and we were receiving hundreds of videos and UGCs uh, when it was at the beginning of these uh, new uh, smartphones, I thought, you know what, there are, there's so many content out there and we are selecting which ones to broadcast. What if there was a platform that people could upload their videos and just broadcast whatever they want to without me making the editorial decision that this is right and that is wrong? So in your ultimate uh, goal for Your Time TV, it would be, I'm guessing, that people, Iranians within Iran or around the world would um, feed content to Your Time TV and that it would, that millions of people would see this uh, within Iran and around the world on the channel, right? Exactly. I want I want an I want an anarchy, if you like. That's pro-regime, anti-regime, pro-gay, anti-gay. Whatever your opinion is, you have this platform. There's no editorial it. bent. You don't. It's there is not, no. I mean, the only control we have is legal control. We don't broadcast copyrighted material. We don't broadcast extreme violence, and we don't broadcast obviously pornography. Things that are you know we have legal responsibilities. Right. But beside that, if if you're if you even say something against me, we'll, we'll broadcast it. I don't care. You know, I, I'm a firm believer in. I'm going to make a video saying speech. bad things about you, just to, just to see if if you'll post it in prime time. Go for it. Let me uh, finish off by asking you a little bit about your your show and your gig at Iran International, which, by the way, uh, is doing really well. You've sort of caught fire with this program, right? Yeah, apparently. I mean, it seems to be doing well. Yeah. So there is a. Uh, you you alluded to this earlier. You talked about it. This there's there's a, a paradox here where you're working for a network like Iran International. You you are covering a country, Iran, that you cannot get a lot of access to. Um, which for a journalist, for any of us who work in the media, that that is a conundrum. That uh, especially if that is your focus. How do you approach that as a broadcaster? It's a it's a challenge day and night every day. I mean, I know I I know that the vast majority of Iranian government officials not going to talk to us. But every day when there is a story, I try to make some calls and email them. You know, today we had this Iranian vaccine. I emailed the firm that is claiming to have produced this vaccine. I emailed, you know, the organization behind them. We try to call them uh, with the hope that maybe someone decides to, you know, break the rules and talk to us, but they don't. And then in the lack of their presence, you have to rely on their own websites and news agencies to see what was their perspective and try to do the devil advocate when you're talking to your guests, which sometimes can be seen as, you know, being pro-regime, which is the last thing I want to do, but you know, you have you have to give the full picture and that's really challenging. It's not just the people in Iran. I mean, I, I, I know even with Rook, it can be difficult doing interviews with people who uh, travel to Iran because they don't want to say things that may jeopardize their status or may put them in trouble with authorities there. How do you handle this reality in your interviews? I mean, even even if you get the interview, then you've got someone who's not giving you a lot. You know what I mean? They're, they're kind of being very careful with their words. And uh, so, so so tell me how you deal with that. It, it's very difficult. I mean, it happens that sometimes we have stories that are not political at all. It can be a technical story. It can be a tech story. It can be a healthcare story. We're going to talk to a doctor or an expert on 
the internet, for instance, and they're going to be, please don't ask me political questions. You know, my mom's are is in Iran or I'm visiting Tehran next week, you know, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, for God's sake, we're just asking very basic questions. Why is right. there a government in place that would, you know, put people in jail for talking to a TV channel? It's just insane. But then there are people who are inside Iran and they take the risk and they talk to us. And some of them face, you know, uh, difficult uh, uh, challenges. But, you know, but the problem with Iranian government is you never know. It's like COVID. It can be a mild symptom. You can die. <laughs> Oh, dear. Right. Yes. I assume there's no shortage of armchair critics in the audience while you're anchoring at Iran International. I know you. your answer is going to be it's part of the job. I'm used to it. I've, I've, I've seen you. Uh, you've been asked this question uh, and you say, oh, well, it comes with the territory. They can say what they want. But but really, how do you handle it? Really, I handle it with the belief that uh, no matter what my opinion is, these are just words and people are entitled to their opinion. It doesn't matter if I like it or not. Um, I don't even really believe in cyberbullying or things like that. Uh, I know it's controversial to say that, but I think you should be able to say whatever you want to say. It if doesn't it's hurt your... you when somebody says no. this person is a horrible supporter of the regime or whatever they say about you on the internet? No, they have zero impact on my life. You know, I have a relatively comfortable life in London. You know, I. Uh, I don't see them every day. I don't need to read them. If I don't like to read them, I can just close my Twitter, you know, and go on my balcony and smoke a cigar, you know. It, it doesn't matter. And, <laughs> and listen, even the president of the United States, if you go on his Instagram or Twitter page, there are millions of people who are, you know, saying all sorts of things to him. Yes. Should he care? You know, he's the most powerful man uh, in the world. I'm, sadly, I'm not... sadly, I actually do wish he cared at times, but uh, but I, 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 your point is well taken. If we do this interview 15 years from now, I mean, it occurs to me that you're, uh, uh, I don't want to go too overboard in, in saying that you're a, a, a young person who's accomplished a lot because you're in your mid-30s now, but, but really you've done quite a bit. I mean, 15 years from now, where would you ideally love to have taken your life 15 years from now such a good question um i hope by 15 years iran is more liberated is a free country that they don't need uh, journalists from overseas to broadcast to them and i can do like a weekly show on fridays maybe something like what you are doing right now and be retired somewhere in uh, south of spain or west coast of the united states I loved all of that, except when you compared it to Rook. If, if only this felt like retirement, this feels like <laughs> I mean, it's exhausting. Yeah, but, but I mean, it's not it's not a nine to five everyday job. I mean, broadcasting every day is is dude. Is this really is twelve difficult. hours a day. We don't have a network. It's a, it's like you know, I I I, have, I don't have any other life right now. This is just like getting these episodes out. You've forgotten you've forgotten your roots. What it's like to come from when you're not at a fancy right. network. Well, th th then I need to have a lot of money to to hire there as you many go. people. Off as Possible, yeah. So I'm just, you know, opening the studio, coming and doing my interview, and that's and perfect. We all, we listen. The answer, I think, is we all want to be Oprah at some point. Exactly. That would be the ideal. You get to do the interview, and everybody else does all the work. Um, 
let me ask you a final question, and you'll forgive me if this is it feels a little twee or cheesy or something, but I actually mean it earnestly because I, you know, the intent of this program, uh, well, there's all kinds of things that we want to do with this program in terms of um, uh, being educational or entertaining or interesting or telling stories, but. But, you know, to talk about who we are in terms of our identity as Iranians in the diaspora, uh, you and I, you grew up in Iran, I grew up in London and, and then in Canada, but we have this common connective tissue. So as someone who grew up there, wanted to leave, went to Dubai, found yourself in, in London, now broadcasting back to your former fellow citizens in Iran, what does it mean, Fardad, to be Iranian for you? What does it mean to be Iranian? It's such a good question. Uh, I, I mean, my answer is, I mean, I'm a very pragmatic person, and I think my answer is not going to be as sentimental as you probably hoped it be. I really believe countries are just places that we were born in, you know. My parents were Iranians. I became Iranian. Uh, I really hope that Iran is one day free and people can enjoy the freedom that people have in democracies. Uh, but being an Iranian for me personally doesn't mean much, to be honest. I'm, I, I, I truly believe I'm, I'm a global citizen. Uh, and if I could uh, live in another country, I think I would live in the United States. I really like America. I think it's a beacon for hope with all the mistakes it made during its, its history so far, but it's a still a beacon of hope for freedom and uh, for many people around the world. It's the only country that people have created, you know, that you can be black or white or anything in between and be American. For the most part. I really appreciate your candor answering that question. That is a that is a very candid response, and I, I you that was a rook response, and I really appreciate that. Although you even earlier you even had a less sentimental version of that, which is you said my parents happen to have sex in Iran, so I'm an Iranian. I, yeah, I, because I think, I, I, that's, just, I, I think that'll I, set a new standard for for non sentimental. But I, I, I <laughs> but I appreciate I mean, it. I mean, I mean, mathematically that's true. I mean, physically that's true. I mean, I had I mean, I'm, I'm proud of the things that I've achieved. Not the things I had no control over. Being born in Iran, I had zero control over that. You know, my parents were Iranian. What, where, what else could I do? Uh, but you know, working hard or you know, doing good journalism or helping people, being nice to each other. These are the things that we should be proud of, not the skin of the color of our, our skin or uh, the name of the country on our passport. Very powerfully and poignantly said. Farazad, I, I, I must thank you so much for the time you've given us, for your candor. And um, uh, it's also been an education getting to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this today. And by the way, I don't think you've done very many interviews in English, have you? No. The, uh, no, I, th I don't think I've... Yeah, yeah, I've done like a few on BBC Word and BBC Arabic, maybe. But, uh, but not, mean, about, not about myself, about other things. Yeah. Well, exactly. And, and yeah. your English is fantastic, and as it should be, but um, I, I'm thrilled that we did this in English, and I'm thrilled to be able to have this much time with you. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Khodafis. Khodafis.
This is Rook, episode 281, the best of Rook. You know, if you are an Iranian anywhere in the world who's a fan of Persian popular culture and specifically Iranian music, you will recognize our next guest on the Best of Rook today. He is an Iranian-British broadcaster with over 30 years of experience producing programming and hosting shows at BBC Persian. And you cannot miss his unique style. Behzad Bulur is an award-winning artist, fashion designer, humanitarian, radio personality, TV presenter, and senior producer. You may have seen shows like Kook, Bulur Banafsh, or documentaries like Tea, a revolution brewing. Behzad was born in Tehran in 1965. He left Iran at the age of 18 after the revolution of 79 in search of a place to be the kind of artistic personality he has always been. He took interest in fashion, interior design, painting, and then also recorded a Persian classical album in 1990, which opened his way to BBC Persian Radio, where he started working as a presenter and producer of youth and music programs, and where he has remained for three decades. Behzad has made it his mission to use his notable platform to promote Iranian artists and underground music. You might say he's become the voice and face for millions of young Iranians over the years, and he has also dedicated much of his documentary work to the restoration of Persian culture, language, arts, and history. Behzad Balur joined me from London, England for his first ever full interview in English. Here's our conversation. Hello, sir. Yeah, I'm all right. Yeah, the whole set is clapping. Thank you so much. I feel so good. I think we should end the interview now because I'm on, on the moon right now. And I'm going to agree with everything you're going to say from now because I love you. Are they clapping for the introduction or are they clapping for you? For everything. I'm over the moon. Who cares? <laughs> Let's go to Mars from now. Anyway, thank you so much for your introduction. And uh, yes, it was, it was partly true. <laughs> No, it was all true. I tried to achieve most of the things you said. And in my opinion, I, I've achieved 70% of what I wanted to do. But thank you so much. Radio, I did like <laughs> this astronomical number of 19 years. And television is 11 to 12 years. Mm -hmm. So some of the things you mentioned is from the TV period. Although in radio days, I did other things. Yes. In TV period, one of the best things I did as a documentary was a documentary. We went to Zanzibar yeah, in, in search of the... Uh, Iranians or the Persians who migrated to East Africa yes. a thousand years ago. Yes. Almost like Christoph, Christoph Colum, Christoph Columbus, Columbus, Columbus. Columbus. So they went and they tried to convince the natives to become Muslims and they kind of forced them or convinced them to do, to create cities and small cities. And that was a thousand years ago. So I went to discover them and they are called the Shirazis. Anyway, that was an amazing documentary, and I loved it, and I haven't done much good things since. <laughs> okay. Stop, stop for a second. First, I, this, is the, this is the problem. We do bringing somebody like you on, a, who's a great presenter, a great personality, and, and somebody with years of broadcast experience. Are you going to allow me to ask questions, or are you just going to talk? No. <laughs> What's the point? I can just talk. <laughs> <laughs> no, please, it's true. please do. I'm surprised you have questions. You know, with me, if I have an interview, I just know the guy and I just let, let's see what happens. The questions are just a technicality. The other thing is, I never 
ever want to hear any more bullshit about you not speaking being able to speak english well your english is perfect you can Thank think you. you're you've just spoken very quickly i mean it's very clear that your english is fine i don't know why uh, and yet i have not seen i don't think i've seen any english interviews with you in researching you it was difficult to find um Thank things you, in, yes, yeah right something i have to think about there's a few small things the reason is i don't know i think from from day one, from the age of 13, I had the oath to to do good for my people. Yes. And uh, based on that, when I went to BBC Radio, I was even invited to go to Outlook, which was a fantastic flagship program on the radio on Channel 4. Yes. I was a producer for four or five months, but then I set this golden line that I belong to my people. And also fighting for the Persian language because, you know, our language inside Iran is being totally destroyed, uh, including our identity because of so many other things that maybe we talk about later or not. But I had this dedication to keep keep originality, keep purity, because in times of lots of fakes, you need to keep purity. Yes. And and it's just a reaction to today's world. So that's why I didn't have English. But maybe you can help me. <laughs> I can start typing it right now. Well, I am. I am. Uh, to, I mean, to, to be serious, I'm quite honored that you're doing this in English because I don't think you. No, I haven't done any in all these years. I don't think you've ever done a long form interview in English. Now, um, I know that you have this policy where you never use an English phrase in any of your broadcasts. You never use an English word. Now, yes. for somebody who grew up in the diaspora like me, I'm very curious about that. Why Why would that be so important? Tell me why. Yeah. Sure. Um, I'm reacting to today's uh, culture and direction that has been forced or we can say that has been accidentally moved. Like the Iranian culture and um, identity in the last 40 years has, has had no no manager let's say it was left because before in the short time there was like this culture centers there was a, this this center that would create persian words right. like instead of calling saying artist which up to the edge of uh Qajar period they wouldn't say Hunarman. they invented the word Hunarman. Mm. Okay, this is basically to catch up with today's world, with your own, who you are, one of the colors of rainbow, not to be a gray color that it can be interpreted by other things. So it was that in the background. And also our culture has been left alone and been pushed into being a religious culture, dedicated to religion, rather right. than dedicated right. to right. who you, what is good for your uh, geographical location. And regarding our history and all that. So based on that, suddenly people have, voluntarily chosen to fake modernity they have no connection with the world they just chosen to speak as if someone has never lived in iran this is an issue you you, you know you could find people in in cambodia or in parts of africa or in 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 uh, parts of south america saying well english uh, is becoming too integrated into our language yeah, yeah, because that, that's, because that's, english is the lingua franca of the world at this point it's the it's the it's yes. the language of the internet it's the language of financial markets etc but i take it that your argument is particularly important or profound or or potent because you're saying Persian culture is vulnerable because of what we've been through. My sister, who's a linguist, would say, you know, settle down. 
language is fluid. It changes over time. That's what language does. And you can't be a headmaster yes. who's going to uh, dictate what the way everybody's going to speak I forever. Yes. The language is fluid for a normal society. We are interesting. We are very similar to Ethiopians of 1970s. We are teared apart. I don't find an um, example of Iran similar to any other examples in the world. We are a society teared apart with two different mindsets, two different groups. It's like Star Trek. There are this group outside which are uh, entangled with the, with the host country influence. The, the cultural edges has been moved or backwards or forwards. And you have a group in Iran who are completely under the regime and they're, they're changing different. So we are very different. And I cannot accept the same uh, change in language and culture that you see in America. That is a healthy country. That is, they're moving. Right. They have democracy, right. they have things. So we are very different. And because of that, we have to be very careful. We have to hold. You speak English, you speak proper English. I love that. Iranians in America speak English. I don't care. I love it. I will speak English to them. Uh -huh. So I'm not a nationalist, you know. I'm quite a very unusual animal. Well, you are an unusual animal, and you're a paradox. Yeah. And so this is the paradox I'm, I'm trying to get out of being Basad Balur in the sense that okay. you, you right can't, now, I'm, I'm, assuming I, you, I I'm assuming you can't even return to Iran, and yet you're speaking to and for a population that's there. It must be, it's a very interesting position to be in. Yes, and I've dedicated, and, and I, I renewed my oath in my bed around 2 a.m. one night a year ago that I'm even more dedicated. I have to be that guiding light maybe for those who who have lost themselves in a way, in my own mind. But, and it's extremely difficult, Gian. You know, I, I my programs is on one side, planning to go to Spain, went to Spain, editing all this. Oh my God, you know, it's, you have to, pr I'm producing and presenting and directing a program which is very fluid because I very much believe in moments so I don't really plan, I, I can just plan a journey, but the moments have to appear on days that I go to countries, which is a weird thing. I promise to do our celebrations. Every month, we had a pure celebration. Like in the month of June, we have a June celebration from the ancient time. In July, we have a July and August. And each one had a very interesting things to do. So I recreate them. I, I structuralize them. I see artists who will be dedicated to that particular day, do art forms, do a little play, and ask children to join. And that is to react, to fight against sadness about mourning. Iranians are happy. In our nature, we have celebrations. In our nature, we loved trees, animals. We didn't kill them because they, we think that they belong to us. They were created for us. Yeah, we are very much part of the harmony. So I try to get all the good things from being Iranian that can make us an interesting color in this rainbow of the world and try to practice it. I had Sadeh, I had Spandor Mazga, which I even hate the word Spandor Mazga, but now I'm purely into it. And I made them interesting. I have a table, I have a special music, but they're all pure. They're really from that time. Like just recently we had a summer solstice celebration. But, but hang on a second, hang on a second. Um, uh, you say so, so no, much. No, what I have to put it together. Okay. So it's not only don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that. I'm actually bringing back celebrations. I'm spending money on it. So much <laughs> management goes, so much heart goes, because it's like you're going to a new place and nobody's with you. I'm going to an empty house 
And it's for me to recognize it's a fantastic place. There's a treasure here or not. Because when I look back, there's no one behind me to support me. I'm just a lone star. I'm a lone ranger. And that really breaks my heart. And, I, and when I do an Instagram live on this celebration, which I'm doing, only 300 people come, 200 people come. So that it, it means like a punch in the face. But I'm, I'm going out. I'm going to go every month. I'm going to re-celebrate all those things we had as a Persian to bring back our beautiful identity, something that unifies us not separates us from the rest of the world. We are not better than anybody else. We are, you, you said something too interesting. You said last year at two in the morning, you realized you yes. want to double down on this. So what happened that was the precipitant of that two in the morning realization? Okay. You know, there's this beetle. It's called dung beetle. It goes, on, goes to the feces of animals and uh, gathers it together, gradually makes it bigger and bigger, bigger, and then okay. rolls it and gets so big that it sort of crushes underneath it. So that was years and years and years of me creating this board, and suddenly it explodes that I am dedicated to this. Okay. And a day before, I was more into doing this and that, but not into that. And, and, and it just renews the oath because I feel so lonely in this. I feel so lonely. That is unbelievable. But I think it's the right thing. I think that one day when I die, some generation in 50 years' time, we look back in the books and say, oh, my God, this was very interesting. <laughs> he actually structurized a celebration, which are now uh, only celebrated by Zoroastrians. He made it modern. He made it cute. He made it sexy. He made it fun. You know, we can look good in it, not, not rather than looking like old people being really serious for celebrations. Let me come back to you feeling alone in what you do, because that's an interesting thing for someone to say who has... Uh, hundreds of thousands of clicks of every episode of what he puts up it's uh and obviously has a real audience um you talked about you know going to spain and shooting and and uh, you know you're you're a 360 kind of person meaning that you want you do it all you produce it you have the concept you wanted uh you, you yes. probably edit etc um but in the moment you like to be spontaneous you've said so yes. uh, you know um uh, Kambi Soseni, when he was on this program, he and I were talking about being in broadcasting for years, and he and I are both the same in the sense that even if it seems like what we're doing is spontaneous, we plan out every single thing. We know exactly the roadmap of where we're going to go, uh, even if we go into a, uh, a situation where we're we're acting like we're improvisational or, or spontaneous. Do you ever use a script? Do you have a script when you're doing your visit to the Rumi sites in Turkey? Do you have a script you're working off, or are you you just mess up, Bulur. Yeah. You seemingly just talking okay. to camera. First of all, I do envy you and Tommy's because I always dreamed of being the person who can write things down because that gives you so much confidence when you're on camera or on stage. I'm, I'm, I'm the only thing I have with me is fear and joy mixed together. Yeah, yin and yang. I live with both of these, mm. like the ancient Persian kings. They said, you know, on the crowns, they had the two wings because. They believe that with two wings, you can fly. Uh, you always need this contradiction. The, so I sort of keep that Persian thing in me. And I envy you very much. I, what I do is, for instance, in, in um, thanks for bringing uh, the Rumi thing, because to me, that was an amazing uh, few years of research and two years of filming. Beautiful work. What I do is, um, I, I mean, I did research without doubt. I read books. I went to even libraries. You know, remember there was something called library? It wasn't Google. <laughs> and I also speak to experts who, are, who know more than me, have 20 years on this, 20 years on that, 10 years on this, 15 years, thesis and all that. 
and I have that in my hand and I write just one line, like one word, one this, that. When I went to Cunha, I saw this, the tomb of, of uh, Molana and I was in a hotel, a beautiful hotel called Hitch, nothing taken from the word Hitch. And I saw the crown or something of the, of the tomb and I said, there's some message in this and I have to discover this. You know, there's something about this shape. And I read about, I started reading that night to 5 a.m. about different tomb shapes. And based on that, I realized this was made later than him. He never saw that. But it's not written anywhere, you know? Hmm. I feel about the builders who made this about 50 years later with the money from this guy who was fascinated by the lover wanting to impress her. So all this in my hand when I said, this tomb is in turquoise color. When I say that, all these people are in my head. Hmm. So the weight of the words to me are very important. And I learned that not only from learning, but I learned that also from singers like Haydn, uh, vocalists like Shahram Nazir, who does um, classical Persian, Mo'in, Dariush. So, so it's all about moments. So you don't even, you, you don't have a, when you sit down for an interview, I mean, does this extend to interviews too? You're sitting there with Ebby and you don't know the roadmap of where you want to go in the interview? You just, you just start talking? Yes, yes. I sit down and I'm just looking at the way he's sitting, looking at his hair, looking at the person here. And I know about him anyway. I know yes, like yes. 20, 30 yes. years in the back of my head and I've forgotten about it. But then he has the interview. He has the questions. And it's all about moments. You know, you you stand out obviously as a. I mean, I think if you were just on the bus or the subway, you would stand out because you're you're such an interesting guy in terms of the way you acquit yourself and your appearance and the hat and the you know. But um, you you you're like a an old British dandy. Do you know the, 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 the a modern the, old British a, a modern da a dandy. Yes, yes. The the tradition of dandyism. You know. Um, yeah, of course. You have that, and you have this spontaneity, and it makes you. Um, it makes you stand out as a broadcaster, but I dare say it makes you really stand out as a broadcaster on the BBC <laughs> um, and and even BBC Persian, which tends to be, uh, you know, people tend to be... Conservative. Yes, let's face it. Uh, so I'm curious how, I mean, I guess at this point they would be cool with you they'd know how good a broadcaster you are but was that ever an issue with with the network yes. Did, was it ever hey buddy can you put on you know some real clothes and yes. stop with this spontaneity and all of that i i went to bbc in 1989 when my album came out and it was interesting because going to bbc you had all these rumors created by different dictatorships in iran that bbc is this and funny enough when i started to work i i brought the idea of a naughty boy uh, to, to BBC, because before, the, needless to say, BBC was fantastic. It was where you see genuine, literate people who were wise, who were, who were knowledgeable about politics and world. They all looked good with suits. I love suits. So I came from this background of fashion design influenced by Sasanian period, which is the Iranian Byzantine style. Mm. So I was very much in, trying to bring back Persian sense of dress code that has died out after Reza Shah's modernism. And I remember in 1993, I wore skirts. And uh, basically because I wanted to reinvent Akamenia, I want to even go further back to the roots to bring back to that. The thing is, uh, it took a long time for people to accept me, to realize that the person who looks like that is not out of being careless. Hmm. Because there's a very fine edge between someone who doesn't care 
and someone who extremely cares, mm -hmm. who is a man of details. I came from atoms up, not from, I don't know, <laughs> from a big plastic bag going to an atom. So I had that in my, and, and I proved it, my, the style of my work, the sensitivity, the attention I had, gradually they respected me. But then during the TV time was again, the whole shit happened again. I remember even um, from British broadcasting that we had like um, mentors and minders who show us how TV is because we had no idea about TV. And I had like my, my shirt was down to my <laughs> belly button open and all that. I wanted to look, you know, sexy like that. And they said, you yeah, cannot dress like this, dress like that. And I kind of accepted them, but at the same time, I wanted to be a naughty person. So then gradually I, I established myself. There is a danger, Jian, in our conservative world that someone with the knowledge, someone who is activist, how much someone who's serious, looks boring, looks flat. The image of a macho man is still there yeah. for my sexuality yeah. as being serious. And because of that, I haven't been taken seriously many times, yeah. many times. And it has hurt me so much. I haven't slept at nights. I was hurt. I, I was in tears even. Yeah. up to the age just even very very recently so that had a massive cost for me to be what i am and it's funny thing is to just to add to this um about 20 years ago i i came to america i was question 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 then fine enough i went to afghanistan and i was question question it was, <laughs> i realized i'm a saint and a satan I mean, I can uh, empathize. I, I uh, am nowhere near as fabulous looking as you are, but I, but in, in all my years at CBC, I know, I know for a fact that there were some executives who, they, they just kind of see you as a troublemaker if you don't, yeah. if you don't toe the line, and and part of towing the line is the image of the way you're supposed to look and the way you're supposed to act, and and. Um, and, and that can be, it's interesting that you bring up being 11 years old, because I was going to ask you about being a kid in Iran. And you, you've talked about how you yes. were artistic from very early childhood. And when you were growing up, there were these parties at your house. Yes. And you were told to come out and perform <laughs> Little Bass yeah, yeah. from like the age of three years old. What would you perform? What would you need to do? <laughs> Actually, funny enough, uh, those 1960s and 70s that I lived as a child, was amazing years. It was, if you look at American 1950s, our lifestyle was very much like that. A nice car, a nice house, an empty Tehran. Tehran was, wasn't as busy as it is now. And we were living in parts of Tehran which were being newly built and buildings look fresh and interesting because the architects were coming from Europe or something and they, they cared. So it was a very interesting lifestyle we had and I never realized we were well off. I thought we were from a middle class and um, so what happened was um, there was this ad on TV for a drink called Oso. So I loved it. I wanted, I was singing it like a mad little boy and they bought me a guitar and they forced me to play it in front of 20 <laughs> people. And I always hate my mother forcing me to do that. But maybe that was the root of wanting to attract attention, wanting to be pretentious in a negative way, but positive to impress people in a positive way, make them laugh, make them smile. And even up to this day, my dream is when someone has lost someone just two minutes ago, I make them laugh. Mm. If I can achieve that, I can die. 
you know, there's, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this, which is that I think you and I have something in common, which is a devotion, at least in my case, it's a devotion to David Bowie. And I, yes. and I, I thought of Bowie, I've always, it's funny because I didn't know this until I started researching you and, and saw some of your old Instagram posts about Bowie and stuff. But I, I mean, I've always thought of you when it comes, to, I've always thought of Bowie, I should say, when it comes to you, whenever I've, I've sort of seen you, because, because it's clear you're, you know, Bowie was an artist in every facet of what he did, even as a young man. He it wasn't he wasn't just the songwriter and the singer and the instrumentalist, but he would design the set. He would make the clothes that he wore. You know, he was yes. kind of doing all of that. And I you're kind of like that. Did you were you aware of of, say, a David Bowie by the um, early 70s when you were a kid in Iran? And if and if, if not, what kind of art were you gravitating towards? Who were your role models for becoming this this character you became? OK, that is interesting because David Bowie is someone I got to know when I was in London in the 1980s. OK. Uh, in 1970, David Bowie wasn't that big in Iran. But um, I will come back to that. Um, at the age of nine, I was done with religion and God at the age of nine. I, I even remember the moment that that happened to me. And I was always fascinated by two different things which has influenced the way I am. My yin and yang was, of course, like every kid, I'm sure you are the same, is the astronaut and the dinosaur. Also, I was fascinated by dervishes, the Iranian Sufis, the way that my parents were talking about them, they were playing this song, instrument called tambour, and they look really interesting, they look really cool with long hair. They look like, um, um, I don't know, a primitive man, caveman. And at the same time, I went to Tata Jamshik, where so I saw this, I didn't have beard, of course, and I said, oh, this, they look really interesting. So my influence was a mixture of all this and, and Europe, the, the fascination with things are changing in Europe, the way they looked, and I remember in 1970, actually now you mentioned, now I remember in 1973, I think I came to Europe, and also 1975, and that was the year that um, glam rock, right. most of the boys were wearing makeup. At the same time, there were amazing ice creams being sold. So <laughs> this, and for me, it was very amazing to being able to um, play a role which you're not supposed to be, but yet be different. Uh, I have to uh, give you an example from an anthropologist. Um, I mean, what I'm saying now is so maybe politically incorrect because our world is changing so much, but I'm saying it in an innocent way as a person who I am. Uh, this anthropologist told me that in some Amazon tribes, they're really macho men wearing like, uh, they dress like women of the, of the, of the tribe mm. and dance like women just to prove that they can still be a man looking mm. like that. So. Uh, that to me was amazing, you know, like like being um, a man, although looking, taking all these looks. And later on, when I realized that the Persian men before Islam used to wear makeup, they used to wear sormen, the eyeliner, and we used to wear jewelry. We started this stuff, the high heels too. Yes, high heels, of course, you know, that uh, it was brought to Europe during Safavid time. Uh, and it's, of course, the um, it's the horse riders' boots. Yes, yes. So David Bowie, Persian man, they all matched up. And courage, something that David Bowie had was amazing courage. It was amazing to yeah. be able to go yeah. on a stage looking like that at that time. Yeah. But maybe if I was in Iran and Iran didn't go through that revolution and I would still be in Iran, maybe I would be able to do that 
a social revolution for some people, yes. bringing them confidence, but in a, in, in a way that is interesting, you know, you need to develop. Just to put a final, a fine point on, uh, on Bowie, because I'll use any opportunity I can to promote him. I, I, uh, I really feel like the world, uh, you, you reference the changes that are happening in the world in terms of social ideas and mores and sexuality and all of that. I feel like the world is just catching up to David Bowie. Not quite even there yet, yes. but just catching David up Bowie to the, Bowie. Was Bowie was positive. doing this 40 years ago, 30 years ago, you know. Um, but you, you talked about the how things might have been different if the revolution hadn't happened. And, and I wanted to ask you about that moment because you seem like... Besajan, the quintessential kind of kid, you were 15 years old at the time, who would have had to have been deeply affected by this revolution and the changes of the very early yes. 1980s. You were the antithesis of so much that Khomeini and the new regime represented. What was that period like for you? And was it clear for you immediately that you were going to need to get out of Iran? Yeah, uh, what happened was um, when the revolution happened, uh, I remember we, we we loved getting out of school and schools were getting closed because of saying Magbashra. It was very interesting. So we all joined it. I remember it was the autumn of 1978. And imagine like a few years ago, I had done with God. Okay, I was just an atheist person. It was funny because the atmosphere of the revolution was so strong that I was saying, Yah Hussein. I even believed in Hussein as one of the martyrs. So I went through this amazing shit, <laughs> it changes. It was unbelievable. And then very soon I became lefty. And then very soon, uh, like within a month, when I saw more people being hurt, I, I started who I am now. Was it a consideration for you to stay in Iran? Or was it oh, clear, yes, yes. Was it clear that you had to go? Was the, yeah, absolutely. I became so strongly Persianized, you know. Even I had my hair long, and I remember the pastors, the moral police were, were beating you. If I had the hair just, just five centimeters long, I had the hair as long as this, I would have it in my shirt and button it up. And I don't know how I survived for five years with that kind of a hair. Okay, I don't know how. And I learned tambour, I learned setar, I wanted to become pure Persian. So then the war happened, and there was this extreme religious society, I don't know what's the word for it, but religious attitude in everyday life. And that to me was the end of it because I, I, didn't, I didn't belong to that kind of society. And my father made a massive mistake. He said that if you uh, cannot go to university, you don't do concur, which I don't know what's the word for it, like GSC or whatever, yeah. I will send you immediately to, to, to Europe. So. I remember there was this GCSC, imagine, in Iran, and the first person who got up after two minutes gave a blank page to the, to the mind that there was me. And I was so happy because in August, I, I ran away from Iran that year. And since then, I'm still traveling, traveling in time, traveling in uh, horizontal lines and vertical lines of time and reality to build and purify and reinvent uh, an Iranian as if that Iranian would live in 21st century. What was it like landing in London in 1983 as an 18-year-old? Was it, I mean, on, on the one sense, it must be bittersweet. You've had to flee this country that, the very country that you're on a mission to to preserve the culture of. Uh, yes. And uh, you're in this new place. You don't speak the language very well. 
Uh, On the other hand, it had to feel emancipating. I mean, there's no shortage of eyeshadow or long hair or high heels that you could wear once you get to London. So, so and yet it's free to do. How do (laughs) yes? So how how do you now reflect on those years of the 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 1980s of coming to London as a as an artsy Persian kid? Okay, that was uh, interesting. Thank you. And I came to London to go to America because. For Iranians, America, we are the Mamalom Bikai. In America is the end. Yeah? Be- behind that, you drop off the world because the world is flat. So the end is America. But somehow I went to the language school and my brother was here. And um, I suddenly saw the, the punks in the street. And I was as if it's the end of the world, you know? I, I knew them from the videos. But to see a society that allows that, to me, it was the most beautiful thing I ever saw in my life. And there were like people having coffee with the rats coming out of their shirts. I said, how free is that? How beautiful is this? That people, without hurting other people, can be who they are. And that, to me, was the positive. And the negative was the depressing city, because you had no friends, you had nothing, you didn't know the language, you were on your own, and nobody knew you, nobody cared about you. The streets were empty, it was dark, it was cloudy. And so this mishmash of these two gradually created stronger me. I remember from the second week I started working as a choreographer and I started doing business jobs on my own, earning 20 pounds, 10 pounds, because I had no money. I couldn't even buy Coke. Um, and Coke, that is the drink. Yeah, <laughs> like it was, I was, like, say. I it was like 20 pence. <laughs> it was too much. <laughs> so, so it was very depressing, but I sent it allowed me to be who I am. And I read books, and, and those days there were bookshops, Persian bookshops, which was amazing. And I was sitting there all the time because there were these wise men in the bookshop selling books. I could talk to them because unlike the Iranians in London, they were like they were speaking my language they knew the 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 authors the knowledge so gradually that depressing time became because i lost my virginity i became a man i realized what sexuality is you have so many angles it's not just putting your lips together as we did at the age of 12. Hmm. just putting our lips together doing nothing it's about kissing in a different way it's about touching each other women can hurt you in in having his sex and it was very very interesting so i became a man i am and i became more and more pure actually as who i wanted to be and i few years ago i saw a, a iranian girl who was a hezbollah in my mind with a, with a headscarf in london and she was praying every day and I, and I told her how come you're in london doing this uh, and she said in london i could be a better muslim than i can be in iran wow. so somehow london has a fantastic freedom which is backfiring in my opinion backfiring yeah uh, because i think that uh, we shouldn't go there okay um, because i did, i mean i yeah. do think that that london is uh i've always it's obviously my the city of my birth and i and i i've always said it's different from the rest of England. london doesn't even belong to the uk sure, sure. No, you're it's its only right. it's its own thing it's it's a no, it's the most international for, for city in the world yeah it's a multinational multi-dimensional city yeah. which has changed since, since 2003. After the Iraq invasion by the Americans and then the Syrian war, then the Afghan war, uh, the, the structure of the London that I live in, in the edge of the poverty, in the edge of the middle class parts of the city is totally changed. The whole Europe has changed as we know it. 
So uh, that is a different story. But London did help me, and I became. I read Sadehadad books in London. I read about Mazdak, the uh, the reformists of the Zoroastrian faith back in Byzantine time. I read about money. I realized we have these messengers uh, that I was looking for, and I found them in London, in the bookshops, Persian bookshop. So I owe a lot to London. You know, people looking at you today, and I, and I, I know that there are Iranians around the world who would recognize you in a second if they saw you or they know your name or they're very familiar with all the work you've done over the years. Um, you know, they know you as a broadcaster. I mean, which is not to say that your fans yeah. or people who scratch beneath the surface won't know that you're a, a lot of other things. But this period of the 1980s feels like um, without knowing you then and without just w w even talking to you about it other than just reading about it and knowing a little bit about you, it feels like it was a very fertile time for you artistically. You're, yes. you're, it's fashion designer, calligraphy, uh, murals that interior you're painting, design, your murals. interior design, and, and, and a musician too, and you make this classical record. And I wonder, this is kind of a twisted question, but, I, but you should appreciate that. Sure. If you knew... In 1990, when you get that first gig at BBC Persian Radio, that you would end up being at BBC, being a broadcaster for the next 31 years, would you still have wanted to do it in the sense that you can't be all of those things? If you're yes. if you're also focusing on being a great broadcaster and putting the kind of effort you've put into doing regular programs for 30 years, I'm yes. wondering if you would look look at it from the standpoint of the of the 28 year old uh, you know or the, the 25 year old uh Bessard and, and go actually uh you know that's going to be too confining for me for the next 30 years sure yeah it's interesting what you're saying because um back in 1980s uh, everything i did i did it right to the end it wasn't like a confused person no not at all the fashion design i did i i lived with it for six years and i was exporting to japan I remember Jean-Paul Gaultier came to my little stool. I had a stool which looked like shit. And he said he wants to buy the idea of my jeans, and I didn't sell it to him. And my jeans were selling like 200 pounds. It's not a joke in 1980. It's, it's a lot of money. It's like paying 4,000 pounds now. I remember bands, uh, funny enough, David Bowie band, the drummer bought from me for his gig in Manchester in those days. And I remember Tip Howe was buying it this way up. Culture Club, one of the artists, they were hanging out together. And imagine, I was only like 23 at the time. And at the same time, I was very well known in Iranian uh, layer of society in London because I, I was the one who was in every function you can imagine. <laughs> From the uh, dead poet society of the LGBT of the time up to Khoi's um, Poetry Night to um, let's build a new Iran. Everywhere I was playing tambour, have a little uh, speech, doing poetry, talking to people. And they knew me. So they used to call me Benzad the Atomenite, the Atomenian. And so, so it was fantastic. Mean? People be, be, knew be, me. What does that mean, Benzad the Atomenian? Akaminians were the 2,500 years ago. Ah, ah, the, the, ah, ah, I thought you said atom and like, like atomic. I wasn't sure what you were saying. Akaminian, no, no, yes. Akaminian, yes, my yes, accent. Yes. So it was extremely fertile. And I did theater. I did gigs in London. And I even found a bunch of money in Covent Garden. It was, it was almost half a kilo of 20 pounds. 
I found it on the street. I took it, took it up, looked around it. Nobody's looking, and I ran. I was in my head. I was dreaming. I became a millionaire, and I sat down and I opened up. It was, it was, uh, it was fake money. It was from uh, a <laughs> filming, apparently, the doing Congo. So that happened. But what happened was, then I did murals for the city and became employed in a job. I was doing so many jobs, and I was very rich at that time. But when BBC happened, um, at the same time, other t- things started to fail. And because BBC loved me, they wanted me to just be trainee, do small jobs. Someone maybe at the back of my head, I thought that this is maybe a future, maybe my subconscious. Mm. So uh, when I started just helping Matab, who had the request show, she was a fantastic lady. I met her in the Hafez poetry classes, and she really helped me to get into this um, uh, BBC. And I was just helping her. I was like her, her left hand. And then when things started to fail, my mural business with uh, DKT uh, company, um, music, I couldn't carry more. I lost my girlfriend, this, that, that, that. Then suddenly it was only BBC. And I remember I knew, didn't know anything about uh, broadcasting. So I used to go at 7 a.m. to the uh, studio just to play with the, with the machinery there and just to learn how to record things. So I learned it. And, and what I did was to survive this. To me, it was a song. It was, it was performing on stage that the music was the story yeah. and the song and the lyrics was my words. Yes. And I, from that day, late 1989 to now, I look at it as a work of art. I'm, I'm just doing songs. I'm doing murals. Yes. I'm, I'm doing fashion design. I'm doing a little play, uh, but they just have this unified form of a video program. But I hear to me, you. really, is that uh, my inspirations are so many directors, and um, I even get inspiration from a comic book, the way the colors are working. This, 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 so it's in a right way. Let's see. I hear you. I hear you so much, and I hear <laughs> how you can, because I've, I've, I've lived it. I feel the same thing. Uh, at, the, at the same time, you know. Um, especially when you're doing interviews, it's a yes. difficult it's a difficult line to walk because when you're a, you're a performer, I mean you are an artist, you are a performer, and you're a good performer. So, um, but when you're doing an interview, the interview should be about the subject, not about you necessarily. Yes. And uh, you know, I was looking. Hopefully, at, it is. I, I was, well, I, I, you know, I was researching you and going back to some of your old messaging kook you know some of the shows you've done and you're interviewing yeah. like air Fawn or something you know and i look at the comments and half the comments are about you you know i really like this guy i like the interviewer i like his hat i like this you know and i'm thinking well the, the only problem with this is this is supposed to be about the other guy that you know <laughs> so ha- that is my weakness well i mean how have you tried to walk that line over the years i tell you yes um I mean, you have to look at, for instance, other interviews like Shahram Akasha and his interview, uh, or even Abby. They're different styles. The thing is, when I look at the uncut version of my interview, then you see <laughs> different words. I'm talking and talking and talking and talking and they're talking. I cut off everything. And it's only a few words from me. Mm. How did it go? This is the word you see on the on the screen, but it's really much more. I build them up. I actually even correct the lines. Many times they're, they're dropping lots of English words which only belongs to an LA lifestyle. Many times they're dropping words which belongs to a Swedish lifestyle. They're dropping words that belongs to Kabul. I keep correcting, creating a unified language, unified expression, 
and emo and also what I do, which I think I'm very good at, is in make them honest. I make them who they are, in my opinion, and I think they actually agree on that most of the time. And also when I ask them to do a live performance, we work on that. Many of these artists don't have bands. We actually, with the help of studios, we bring a band together, mm -hmm. write down mm -hmm. the notes. <laughs> you know, we actually spend money to make them like that, and they sing it as if the same night they created that song. Mm. Because I just quickly say that Iranian music is from a third of country. So we are like a hurt world, hurt people. But what I try to do is to be uh, dedicated to the way of BBC that started in 1943. They sent a person to Iran villages and Iran streets with a gramophone to record pure songs from the streets, from the cabarets, from performances, and brought it as an archive which we have. So I'm continuing that line of being, bringing the honesty, helping the music. We are like the Ministry of Culture, in my opinion. So that person, although maybe they interview, they look at me, but that interview, that work program is about that person very much, mm -hmm. but people maybe don't realize it because it's about the night that that person bought that song or made it, that joy, you know, doing it live is very rare. They're all done live. And they even have a chance to go and correct their voice later. We even make that provide for them. Beatles went to BBC and played live. I'm, I'm trying to be the... I want Iranians to have exactly the same facility. When did that... I was going to ask you about that because you, you... you And I know I can't keep you here forever. You've been so generous with your time. I've just got a couple more no, questions. I, I love I'll it. ask you, you about music. Um you know, it's clear. I mean, we talk about Abby and Airphone and some of the big names that you've interviewed, but um, it is clear that over the years, you've you, it's been important to you to support Persian artists and celebrate the young, the new ones, the young ones, yeah. to, to unearth these people to to kind of um, yes uh, take the veil off. Uh, when when did you make it? When did you make it your mission to want to promote young Iranian musicians and artists? When did that mm -hmm. click in you? Yeah, that started in my room in Tehran, when I played the sitar, um, I started this show called um, which was the first live request song connecting to Iran on any outside broadcasters, as I know, because before you would record them maybe, but maybe VOA did that, I don't know. But from 1996 up to now, I bring the most unknown people mm -hmm. in a way that mm -hmm audience get hurt, they're upset that this person has only even one song, doesn't even have a nice voice, why you have it? I say it's not about voice anymore, it's about how you pronounce, it's about how you play that song, it's about how you create an emotion. So I have to use this opportunity to ask you this question because it's something that we talked about a bit about on the show and there's no, sure. it, this is, this is asking you this with the knowledge that you know and I know and most of the audience knows that a lot of the dysfunction that came into the Persian music industry, if you could even call it that, in Iran was because of things freezing after 1970. You know, the, the heartbreaking stories of people like Faramaz Aslani, who's just getting his career going and then has to go in the wilderness for two decades, you know, because there's no music played there, etc. We all know that part. But in the diaspora, uh, as someone who is clearly a supporter of alternative and underground Persian music and culture as you are, let me ask you a question that I grapple with and, and get your perspective. Why is 
this is a value judgment, but let me have it. Yeah. Why is so much of the Iranian music, pop music, that has been made outside of Iran over the last three decades or so, so unimaginative, so cookie cutter? A lot of it sounds like it's it's all been made in the same L.A. factory room. Why is that? Okay, I tell you. First of all, after the revolution, there was a explosion, a beautiful explosion of Persian music. Only after a few years, because it was all about um, revolutionary music, which was made properly by the orchestras. But then by the late or mid-1980s, it was this bonfire of beautiful Persian music, which was based on the 1970s Persian music, where groups like Sheda or Chavosh Music Company, let's say, uh, with the help of Farah Pahlavi, brought instruments from folk music into Persian music. So I was ex- and that reinvented itself in a most beautiful way. It was bad for the pop music, but fantastic for the Persian music. Hmm. And they tried to survive. Shahram Naziri was creating songs in the underground. In Persian traditional music was underground in 1980s. Only it resurfaced in nine, uh, late 1980s and 1990s. So that's one thing. So we're talking about that. And pop had a comeback in 1999, I think, with the help of Khatami, who opened up. Right. They get permission from us. So we put that on side. I think we had the most glorious time of pop music in 1980s in LA. But what happened in, in LA because of revolution and, and the immigration, Iranian music became teenage and Persian. For the first time, Tombak and Tar became part of the music. And you have to remember, still was that joy, that passion of 1970s Iran, okay. still there in 1980s. People would spend money with the bands, big bands, Haydes, bands, amazing, Ebis, Darish, anybody, Sharam, Shapare, Shore, Andy and Kurs, the fantastic pop music pieces. And then it was pure, it was opposite to 1970s. 1970s, you would say something very simple in a very difficult way because of the uh, Savak time, because of the uh, security in Iran and the political situation, nobody was allowed to talk. So they have something very simple like love in a very complicated words in pop music. But then it sort of broke through. Now it was teenagers song, like 1960s in, in West, 1950s. So it was fantastic. Topolirism is, is an amazing song. Thank God that was invented. And then p- Iranian music, pop music was, was fantastic. It was the best time, up to early 90s. And then they had the explosion of wealth uh, when the CD came and when the concerts in Dubai opened up. Uh, Iranian music in LA become again fantastic because there was the internet. So people from Iran would send uh, lyrics before, a decade before, Singers were proud that they were doing their own lyrics, their own music, their own composition, which was shit. But now in, in early 2000, we have lyrics from Iran, from Maryam Haydazadeh, the, the beautiful girl with amazing vision of a girl talking about love. And we had fantastic composers composing. And suddenly, and also with the worth of the concerts and people buying tickets, uh, the singers from LA went and met their, their audience. And that was a beautiful explosion. Uh, Iranian music, pop music in early 2000s is, is one of the, again, it had a fantastic jump. And then the reason that it keeps on repeating itself is what I just said earlier. When you're a third part country, 
you don't, you know, we are not like Americans. We are not even like Chinese. We are not even like Indians or Pakistanis or even Afghans. We, we are not in our own country. We have the economy of 3,000 people want to satisfy 80 million people. That's something that Mansur said, and I respect it. So when you make your song, you don't have the money to make it. At the end, you end up just doing synthesizers because of the because people don't buy it. People blame singers. People have to blame themselves. We don't have the cup. Even right now, nobody in Iran, even if there's an open up to buy something, they will never buy it. They rather copy it. They think that it's the right to have something for free. So it's a mixture of economy, political situation, and geography. That's a um, that, that was an amazing history lesson. I that's the the best. Most <laughs> most convincing and most uh, passionate defense of uh, of the kind of pop music that was coming out of LA in the 1980s that I've ever ever heard and and I really appreciate yeah. it. I am going to diverge with you uh, when it comes to the 90s pop music yes. and even even through to today. I I'm not as enamored of it as I mean seemingly you you don't think that there's ever been a a bad period of of, of Persian no, no, pop 1990s music. No, very bad. You, oh, okay, you agree. All right, because okay. Yeah, yeah, because uh, they were they were doing their own songs and they wanted to they, they wanted to fake it. it. It is such a a pleasure to talk to you. Let me a, a final question to you or a final little strand sure. here, which is that. Um, and I mean, I could talk to you for days. We're going to have to do this again. You know, you're stuck now. Sure. Now that you've started I'm these English that. interviews, uh, instead of in Persian or Farsi, as I would say, and get you angry. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when you talk about unity. Um, yes. You know, uh, this is a question. I mean, I feel bad that I have to, I always feel obligated to ask this, but I mean, I, I've asked it of someone like Faradad Faradzad, who used to be at, B at BBC or, or, um, or Puneko uh, Dusi, you know, um, the BBC, even working at the BBC, maybe less so for you because you're more in the cultural area. I don't know. Yes, but it's I, become it's... controversial because everything in our community and our diaspora is bifurcated, and there's everything's there's, there's people on different sides of everything yelling at each other. Um, how do you cope with that? How do you cope with the the fact that just putting you on this little show of ours, I I can guarantee you that somebody's going to write to us and say, you know, oh, Besad Balours is with the regime because he, he's you know because yes. he works at BBC. I mean, how? What is your philosophy on all of that as somebody who's been at that institution for over three decades? BBC Persian, I should so, say. Uh, the BBC is uh, institution that actually other institutions come to learn from. I remember back in 1990s, uh, NHK Japan wanted to open a Persian language radio and they came and learned about this. BBC News has one of the best unbiased way of uh, broadcasting. Because of that, sometimes when you're angry about something, you see, don't see that anger. Because of that, you think that, oh, there's something. And sometimes you pro something, you don't hear that proness. Right. So, uh, our society is not, this, in the, especially in the last 30 years, our society doesn't read books. We don't know about our recent history. We don't know how Qajar changed to Pahlavi, Pahlavi changed to modern Iran, how the revolution came, what happened during 1970s, 60s, and 1950s, how Sabak started, how Shah was terrored, and uh, where were the, the mass executions of the 1980s. They just don't read. And they just want to listen to what you say. And based on what you say, they decide. I've seen that amazingly 
in, in especially in the new layer of society, we are the people who don't know the facts. We hear what we want to hear and want to just to empty ourselves. In Instagram, which to me is a massive university of uh, uh, anthropology, <laughs> uh, these kids come and they don't want to be bothered to go and learn. What's the craziest thing they've said about you? Maybe the craziest thing somebody told me directly was in Harrods, um, which I never forget. There was a family who were like covered and they saw me in Harrods and said, let's take a picture. But as if like, like you're like an animal from a from circus. And right, right. I said, I said, like, look, you took a picture of this idiot. And I said, OK, thank you. I said, you know why we did, we took a picture of you? I said, why? Why? I said, because you look you're such a mishmash of things. You're such a, I don't know how, how you translate Ajahbaja. And that was so funny, the way they see me. And that hurt me as well. But then I realized that's how people see me. And because Iranians are not me and you. There are still some people who voted positively. They're happy with the regime. They, are, they actually have benefited from Iran's government. And they are part of Iran. We are part of Iran. Right. We are living all together with with different time zones, with different realities. Uh, and it's getting more and more separated. Uh, but that's the reality of my country. I went to Sweden, i just say that the last word. I, I sat down with the Iranian taxi driver and we talking something and said, my, my son goes to the same school that the prime minister's boy goes. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, uh, countries in the West, they're so unified in their culture and the spread of wealth and the opportunity that this taxi driver, who was a revolutionary, apparently, he was a nice guy, he was maybe an architect, mm. has the same opportunity, his son has the same opportunity as someone in the government. And that's something I haven't seen in my country for decades and decades and decades. And we did the revolution because of that, to break that. But hopefully sometime in the future, when we learn, read more books, became more Iranian of the 21st century, find out who we are again and see how beautiful can we be rather than be the mishmash of people <laughs> then that may be happen where, where do you think you're i mean let, let's say you're halfway through your your journey you're in your your 50s what, what do you think your next act is going to be where what do you want to explore next do you think you'll be at the bbc for another 30 years uh no not that I want to not to be there, but I will be maybe left with not much choice because I have to grow and um, BBC is a fantastic ground to let you be who you are, but that's not enough. I have to just move. Uh, I'm like an octopus. Uh, I've grown other hands. And, and you know that if mammals die, the octopuses will take over the world and some of them can fly by creating methane uh, gas in their head so they can float. So I've become an octopus. And um, what I see in the next 30 years, because I think I die at the age of 85, uh, is um, totally dedicated to recreating Iranian identity in a pretty way, to um, cut away and clear off nationalism, racism out of it, and all the purity and niceness of it, reinvent it, spread it back again to the society, and then fake my own death to see how people think about me. 
and then uh, you find me in a, I don't know, in some house somewhere in an island in Mediterranean, died for 20 years and nobody even found me. So that's my future. But I'm totally dedicated. I hope that I can get the finance that I need so I don't have to work anywhere, but work dedicated only to our culture to recreate and reinvent it. And that's what I want to do. Uh, otherwise, because I need the money to do that, I still have to work. So it could be BBC or somewhere else. And um, based on f uh, better money and also better value that they give me, not only money, because all my life I just spend rather than earn. So it's about how much they value you. Listen, if you know that you're going to um, live until 85, only 85, then yes. I, I guess you have to fake your death at, at age 84, or are you faking the death at 85 and we don't know how long you No, I'm going to fake my uh, death around 83, and I've written I've written four stories, which is in my, I'm going to publish them in Bezard Graph, that how I'm going to actually, it's quite an interesting way of faking my death because they're going to bury me in London in an ancient style, which I'm going to be covered with the red okra earth, and we'll be put in a vase like the ancient Persians. And I already have uh, contacted a Polish hyper-realist statue maker. I've already started it. Wait, I, this, the mechanics of this are tripping me up. So if they bury you, how are you going to escape and be on ah, an island? That's it. <laughs> because I've thought about it. <laughs> you clearly have although i think 83 is too soon i think i mean you know shoot for at least 93 or something no you want no, be... i think no you know once i do the test they ask you all these silly questions about how many times you masturbate or how many times you did it drink walk da 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 uh -huh. and then and it came out as you you would you would die at the age of 85. It was so funny. And you took that to the bank to get kabul kardi, huh? That's it. You're like the, you're like the people on Instagram who believe that you're you know are asking you your age. You're willing to believe that? Come on, I think I think we should make it 95 and fake the death at 93. It'll be that much more dramatic as a 93 year old. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that would be interesting, and because I have to somehow make money in that period of time. But I, but, but I started the fake of it, and it's going to be very interesting. Uh, it, it's already interesting. It, it's not going. To, it's not <laughs> yeah. going to be interesting. It's already interesting. Basad Bourlur, uh, I love you. I thank you so much for taking the time, and I can't wait to do it in person, brother. Thank you so much for giving me the, uh, this opportunity and making me rock with a cue. That's right. That's right. I'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Oh, can we say Chod office or do I say something else? I say Durud. I say no, Sepos. No, say Chod office, but I say Bedrut. Aha, uh -huh, Bedrut. Since, since 1981, I say Bedrut. Bedrut. See you, Bedrut. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> there you go. Behza Bulur in uh, our full interview from London, England. Uh, the Irrepressible. This is it. This is full time for Rook for today. Our best of Rook series continues on Mondays and Thursdays until the end of August. And in September, we come back with a brand new season of Rook. In the meantime, for all things Rook related, go to our website, rookmedia.com. All of our back episodes, all of the videos, the funnies, it's all there. 
rookmedia.com. Thanks to the amazing team who put this show together. Smart Pega, Savvy Roham, Super Parisa, Bearded Omid, Talented Anahita, Sound Person Louise. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please do subscribe. If you haven't done so already, subscribing is free. And you can do it on all the platforms and leave good reviews too. Find me on Instagram at Gian Gomeshi. As ever, Mizunbashi. Bashi.